0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Hawaii Tourism Authority is expected to release documents related to the award of a marketing contract to the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement later today. The first contract award went to the Hawaii Visitors and and Convention Bureau, but was canceled and rebid. That move had many industry watchers scratching their head and Raises questions about the process. This morning, we talked to former uh, HVCB head Tony Virichella, now with VSTSV Enterprises, a marketing and consulting firm, about his take on the move.
1: Over the last couple of decades, Hawaii Tourism Authority has continually shifted its role from what it was originally established as, in terms of creating the vision and direction for tourism, and to get all the various... State departments working together, in addition to the industry and the community, to move tourism forward. And as Hawaii evolves, to evolve with that direction, to make the significant shifts and changes. But instead, what Hawaii Tourism Authority has done is created a larger organization that was than it was ever intended to be, and got into the actual you know, management of marketing, contracting for every part of the world as if they're all different. But Hawaii is one brand, and the HVCB, as the one and only nonprofit organization that was doing all the marketing globally for Hawaii, and it had, in various parts of the world, brought in people with expertise to help in those specific areas, but the branding message and the umbrella themes of diversity in law were were held constant. Uh, and it was on a path of shifting to the quality of visitors versus the quantity of visitors. Well, what happened over time then was White Tourism Authority decided it was going to get more directly into the marketing of tourism. And instead of just having the one contract for HVCB because... Some people in the legislature and HTA felt, well, maybe it was just too, uh, too big and too powerful, even though it's a nonprofit and everything it does is, is for the right reasons and for good reason, uh, not for profit. But they went out and started hiring for-profit entities in different parts of the world to do marketing in different parts of the world. By doing that, you dilute the dollars that you're given because those for-profit entities want to build in profit into their efforts. And then you have to add more people at Hawaii Tourism Authority because now they have to manage more contractors in different parts of the world. Let alone, they figured out that, well, the support services just aren't there for all those entities. So then, of course, they gave uh, started doing new contracts for HVCB to provide support services to all the different for-profit entities so that collateral materials and language translation of things and advertising and market research and website development, maintenance, all these things still needed to be done and you couldn't do them from all over the world, you needed to have it done in one location taking in the nuances of how messaging is done in various countries. So, you know, the the skills with which to, uh, these marketing practices continue to evolve as the world evolves. And now there's so much communication, you know, clutter out there for everyone, that you need to find ways of breaking through that and constantly challenge your organization to be more effective, to be more efficient. And there isn't any entity out there like HVCB. HVCB has been actually revered by destination marketing and management organizations around the world. Over the decades, they've come to Hawaii to learn more about what were, what HVCB was doing and how they're doing it. How Hawaii as a tourism destination was evolving for the residents and visitors alike. Hawaii was always held up as the example through which others around the globe were looking to evolve themselves when tourism became the number one industry in hawaii was long before it ever became the number one industry practically everywhere else in the world you know now tourism is number one two or three in most countries uh, around the world in terms of an industry a lot of things keep evolving and changing but that 120 year history and the evolution that's gone through and the, the marketing expertise and acumen and development of working with other community leaders here, whether it be cultural, whether it be scientific, whether it be at the at the UH or other industries that are developed in Hawaii, the marketing messaging has helped to be a catalyst for those industries as well.
0: Well I think for those of us that are on the sidelines just watching this shift a <laughs> <this laughs> seismic shift there are some concerns that the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, do they have the right stuff? Do they have what it Correct. takes to manage these contracts?
1: It appears from anything that we can read or access about them that they do not. They don't have any marketing expertise in any field. What they've been doing, I'm sure, is, is very positive. I don't know much about them, but obviously they've been a pass-through agency for grants for Native Hawaiian Advancement, as, as it indicates, but the expertise they have in any field related to communications doesn't appear to be uh, existent. But what it appears will occur, just like in this whole bidding process, is a lot of uh, what apparently is now in their marketing plan was in HVCB's marketing plan when it's submitted in the first round of proposals. And I'm sure that HVCB, uh, if this goes forward, will end up uh, having to completely downsize and restructure again uh, leaving a lot of people without any uh, you know without work and I'm sure that uh, the, the council will probably look very closely and quickly at uh, a lot of those individuals and so they'll just shift over under a different organization I'm
0: hearing that the uh, neighbor island bureaus that know those islands uh, intimately you know that, that they could somehow I don't know be folded into The council's plans?
1: The island chapters should clearly be part of the same organization that's doing the communications out there to the world of who we are, what we care about, what we offer as, as a place for people to come and visit and immerse themselves in. So they always should be part of whatever that organization is. And they always have been part of the HVCB. The funding mechanism changed a couple of decades ago because the funding for the island chapters used to be uh, with them going directly to the legislature on the one hand and directly to their county governments on the other. And those are the sources of their funds primarily. And then when the Hawaii Tourism Authority around that time when that was uh, was actually being uh, developed, that's when... The island chapters and HBCB were brought together to seek funding under one approach at the legislature, but they always have collaborated very closely together in terms of what the messaging was going to be, because the messaging for each and every island community is different. But it all has to be connected and integrated into the overall messages out there and to the markets that they're seeking to provide their messages to. Not everybody is pursuing the same type of visitor from the same origins. All these things were, were incorporated and should continue to be incorporated. But even the history of the island chapters is quite extensive and, and very involved. And that's not anything that the Council for Native Hawaiian Affairs would have any knowledge of or experience in.
0: So it would be a steep learning curve.
1: Yeah, very steep. And and people ask, well, what would be the impact on Hawaii terms of uh, visitor arrival spending, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in the short term, in the very short term, there won't be any negative impact because there's so much you know, ongoing built-up momentum. And within the post-COVID environment, as you can see, as we've talked before, Hawaii is still considered to be the safe haven out there. It's an exotic destination. It's a place where you can fill comfortable and be, it's a tolerant place. we a nearly perfect physical and social environment. It's the place people want to come to. And especially in this immersion from COVID, the U.S. visitors, for example, had no other choices. They didn't want to go to the bigger markets like the Las Vegas's or Florida's or Disney's because of so many people being there. They couldn't travel internationally. They didn't, couldn't go on cruise lines. Didn't really want to go to. Mexico and other locations because of, again, health and safety concerns. So, this continued pouring of people coming to Hawaii has occurred. Although, the pricing has uh, gone enormously higher for everything here in, in the destination. Airfares, rooms, activities, food and beverage, et cetera, et cetera. But the demand just continues to be strong because a, it's a positive thing to be here and the other is there's no alternatives for the visitors to go
0: as we've seen you know over the last couple of years there's been the move to weaken the gorilla with the hotel room tax you know now going to the the counties right. and HTA having to really scrap for uh, its funding this year
1: um, yeah. but if uh, yeah, people start to consider on the other you know what what continually gets missed is you know tourism is the number one industry for the state and has been for quite some time. And I think everybody you know understands that. What they keep missing is you would always want to use your strengths to build up other industries. So there should have been, more, as there was uh, two or three decades ago, a really aggressive movement. And there can be, again, to build up other industries using tourism as a strength. Have it be the catalyst as it was for the TV and film and and commercial industry, as it can be and was for uh, the advancements at the University of Hawaii and the things that, you know, the the key areas of industry that the University of Hawaii stands for and and has expertise and acumen in as it was for and can be further for digital media and, you know, so on and so forth. The captive insurance uh, industry, you know, We have industry segments here that are not quote unquote tourism, but tourism can be used as part of the messaging vehicle and as part of the vehicle to bring people that have expertise in those other industries to Hawaii, you know, bring those symposiums here. You know, there's so many ways to to leverage it for the betterment of our community, our other industries, our residents and the very visitors that are coming. And that push to higher quality of visitors and less quantity was started in the late 90s and early 2000s, but then people kind of lost their way. And absolutely, the focus should be back there again. There needs to be a redirecting HGA back to its origin and away from the path that it's currently on, away from this mentality of the end justifies the means. They're doing things so they can exist and that they get funding. They should start doing things for the right reasons.
0: That was Tony Virchella, former um, Hawaii Visitors and Conventions Bureau head, talking about the recent award of HTA's marketing contract to the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, connecting the local community with more than 120 flights daily between the islands. Schedules and reservations at hawaiianairlines.com.
3: Help shape the future of Hawaii Public Radio. Nominate yourself for our Community Advisory Board. As a volunteer, You'll represent your neighborhood and advise HPR on programming, events, and outreach. If you live on Lanai, Moloka'i, Maui, Kauai, or Hawaii Island, we especially want you to apply. Apply by June 30th at hawaiipublicradio.org.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance executive MBA in travel industry management scheidler.hawaii.edu.
0: How do we strike the right balance between Native Hawaiian cultures and the environment and tourism? HBR's Casey Harlow joins us now to talk about the Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association, which just came off its two-day conference. Good morning.
4: Yes, good morning, Catherine. uh, Last week, uh, the NAHA, or the Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association, held its Kahui Na conference uh, for two days. Uh, consisting of four panels uh, discussing how to strike that balance. Uh, And, you know, that balance seems to be on the the top of mind for a lot of tourism officials, not only that, but community members as well. And so one of the first panels uh, really discussed what Hawaiian values are driving Hawaii's efforts to manage tourism and educate visitors. That seems to be like a big thing, right? Been hearing a lot of like how, how do we do this and how do we get this done? And so um, you know this panel really uh, was talking about how they could uh, spread mal- the HTA and also uh, tourism officials can spread uh, the concept of ma llama right A stewardship responsibility and just caring for uh, the environment and not only that, leaving it better than how you how you came uh, and saw it. Uh, HTA board chair uh, George Cam, uh, Basically said that uh, HTA is working on this, spreading uh, this concept of uh, malama in addition to Aloha, and uh, he wanted he made the argument that community is very essential uh, to this process and needing uh, the community to get involved because it's not just uh, you know the HTA or Naha or the visitor industry guiding this
5: tourism is everybody's business. It affects all of us and it does so much good, but we also know it causes some pain, you know, and I think it's recognizing that, you know, and then working like I talked about healing, but I think people are missing really the value, but it's not for us to tell them the value, but just look among your family or anybody's family uncle, auntie, everything. You're going to see everybody is connected to tourism in some way. I mean, you could talk from the financial side, you know, or a lot of Molokai, maybe they don't want tourism at all. You know, so that's what I talk about asking permission. And I think that's the beginning of what the DMAPs and the steering committee, it goes back to community. And it's not like all Oahu agrees or every island agrees. And that's why we go from the Moku or each Ahupua and even among each community.
4: And so he references the DMAP, which your show has covered, the Destination Management Action Plan, uh, which uh, consisted of steering committees from every island, every county, uh, stakeholders uh, within the community, uh, from nonprofits to the private sector, uh, just creating a plan of how uh, tourism could be better managed. And then there was another panel uh, on day two uh, talking about uh, what innovations are advancing the visitor industry's efforts to be better stewards of uh, local natural resources? And Kurt Cottrell, uh, who's with the DLNR, State uh, Parks um, Division, he's the administrator of that. And uh, he said, you know, Haena is a really great example of that. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with what's going on in Haena, uh, a hui of community members are in charge of managing that state park and they're getting resources from the government uh, primarily through uh, what seems to be visitor fees uh, to take care of this and he says that really helps or gives him hope uh, because his division doesn't have a lot of resources uh, whether it's staffing or uh, funding and there's always something going wrong with state parks and or you know there's a lot of a laundry list of things that uh, could be improved within the state parks. And so this is what he had to say. I think what gives me
6: hope is, is partly the fact that, you know, we have generational families at Hana that are now employed by the visitor by, based on these, these fees that we're, we're charging as we're doing it at, at, in Hana. And we won't be able to do it at all of our state parks, but there's several other state parks come to mind, such as Kealakekua Bay, where we have a Napopo uh, lineal descendants there, we have Huala Kiala as a fledgling organization way behind the Hui in terms of their capacity. But what gives me hope is there seems to be, rather than us just beefing with visitors, which I know happened when, when the gates opened up in 2021, but communities now stepping up and trying to work with us, knowing that government can't do it all.
4: And he also noted within that panel that, you know, there is some uh, legal things with uh, the Hui in Haena and Kealakikua Bay, uh, namely that you have to f- uh, become like a 501c3 um, nonprofit in order to get support from the government.
0: Well, it's interesting because I was just down at Napopoa at Kikua this weekend, and I was really kind of impressed with what they've done there, you know, in the facilities and, and uh, how it's being managed. Uh, so quite a difference from you know, the way it used to be with no management.
4: Exactly. And, you know, that kind of partnership that Cottrell mentioned is maybe something that uh, will work going forward where, you know, community members uh, hui up together and are able to better manage uh, these resources. Also worth noting uh, real quickly that, you know, there are some disagreements within the comment section uh, because it was a virtual conference. Uh, There is some disagreement about, like, even uh, spreading Malama, you know, if that's a concept you know, marketing-wise or, you know, whether that would be something or how it, you know, would be effectively done. So there is disagreement there or, you know, a lot of concerns. But for the most part, uh, the discussion is still going on, and we'll see where it goes from here.
0: Right. And HDA did launch the Malama campaign, which I think just won some awards. Yeah, uh, exactly. So we'll see how that plays out. But thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We have been talking to HPR reporter Casey Harlow. To read uh, more on this issue, go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Honolulu Civil Beat takes us out to the beach for our reality check today. It's a story about ocean safety and a move to make it a standalone city department. Reporter Kristen Downey joins us today. Good morning.
3: Hello, Catherine.
0: Yeah, so your story is about a push to try and get a question on the ballot this fall.
3: That's right. That's right. Well, you know our our ocean lifeguards are world famous, um, but they feel that they haven't gotten the respect and the funding they deserve and need as demands for their services mount. Now we all seen all these social media campaigns and all people going out to different kinds of beaches, um, in addition to tourism. Uh, Surging once again, uh, more locals are engaged in riskier water sports farther out into the water than they had been, and we've also increased uh, the coverage of the beaches by having lifeguards out there from dawn to dusk. In other words, we're putting a lot more demands on our lifeguards, and they say they need to be a standalone department in city government to be able to advocate for the for the funding and resources they need. They're asking the voters to be allowed to consider the question.
0: Yeah, and right now they're under the city's uh, Department of
3: Emergency Medical
0: Services. um, That's right. And I know... They're
3: the same group that is the ambulances. Yes,
0: and in the past there have been talk about, oh, they really should be under the uh, fire department, you know, with a fire rescue. Uh, So lots of back and forth on this issue. Uh, But uh, so this rezo that uh, that was before the council, what, it's uh, bottlenecked at this point?
3: Uh, yes, um, it was uh, proposed resolution twenty one two thirty four is what it's called, um, and it would allow the question should the lifeguards have a separate department be allowed to go to the voters at the general next general election, um, and it was uh, it was sponsored by representative I mean by uh, council member Heidi Sunyoshi, who chaired the public safety uh, committee in the council, um, but other even though there's been a lot of support on the side of other council members and um, they've gotten several votes uh, very encouraging votes on this issue in the past um, it now is bottled up in the budget committee under uh, council member Calvin say and uh, and I guess uh, and and the belief is that um, if this issue could be put in front of another committee and that the whole council could vote on it in time to allow voters to vote on it In the fall Um, but so far um, it has not moved out of those committees to allow that to happen
0: well I imagine that there are financial implications if you start up a whole nother department
3: indeed and that's what a lot of critics are saying is that there are you know that anytime you set up a whole separate department you need a whole separate administrative function for it Um, the lifeguards argue that it might not be as expensive uh, as people might fear and In any case, um, the demands that we're placing them are on them are so great that they need to get a higher level of respect and attention within the city government than they've gotten as just another division. Um, Also, they point out that uh, EMS, Emergency Medical Services, has a lot on its plate this year anyway because the state switched funding. um, uh, The the EMS services are now going to be financed by the city, no longer by the state. So they're in a department that already has a lot of serious issues to think about. And they say their own issues are getting short shrift. Anyway, um, I, among I, them are the facilities, which they say are really sound pretty deplorable.
0: Yes, I mean, because they're in places like uh, the Waikiki Natatorium, which
3: is uh, which not in the best shape. Which is actually condemned. Mm-hmm. And they're also operating um, their jet skis. They've had to store in public restrooms. And they in Kailua, they've had to work out of shipping containers.
0: Yes, they aren't given. Everyone
3: agrees this is clearly substandard.
0: Yeah, and and so they are just uh, hoping for uh, uh, I guess more support in these areas because obviously their responsibilities um, are uh, you know are so important uh, to the visitors and uh, to the residents at, at at the beaches that we have across the island.
3: That's right, and the dollars and cents of it all needs to get a good, strong look.
0: But I imagine, though, if if they're going to uh, get this on the ballot, that uh, somebody's got to make the first move. If another committee is going to pick it up,
3: yes, that's right. Um, uh, Council Chair Tommy Waters could move it into another committee. I understand um, there are some avenues, but um, but but time is running out. Um, the election is 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 coming close, and. Uh, We only have about a a month for that to happen. Um, I understand that the mayor could also do this unilaterally. So there's a couple different ways this could happen. And in addition, in any case, it's a good time to look at the issue and think about it. Think about the mounting needs on the lifeguards, how we want to best use them, how many we need, and how do we maintain the -the state-of-the-art ocean lifeguard force that we all depend on.
0: Yeah, important issues. But thank you so much, Kirsten.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: That was reporter Kirsten Downey with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org.
2: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, offering ways that residents from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai can help conserve water. Updates on Red Hill and other information at Protectoahuwater.org.
3: June is Migraine and Headache Awareness Month. What's the difference between tension headaches and migraines? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me for part one of our expert's explanation of how to know the difference and why keeping a headache diary is essential to eliminating the pain. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
0: The pandemic and the ratcheting political tension in the world has certainly put supply and demand issues in the forefront. Par Hawaii and Hawaiian Airlines recently announced a deal to explore sustainable aviation fuel. How feasible is it to produce locally um, made fuel, green fuel? We talked to Eric Wright about this desire to shift off of petroleum to biofuels. We also get an update on Par Hawaii's talks with the military as we deal with the shutdown of the Red Hill underground fuel tanks.
7: You know, there's a number of things we're working on with Hawaii, and we've, we've been their main fuel supplier in Hawaii for several years now. I have a really strong relationship with them. We supply them on all the neighbor islands as well. And about six months ago, we got a call from Peter Ingram. He said, why don't you come over to our offices? Let's sit down and talk about sustainable aviation fuel and, and figure out if there's something that we can do here in Hawaii. And so we had that meeting, and we we discovered that we were serve in the same place. Uh, we wanted to do something and so did they. So it really was a great opportunity to team up with them. And the, the first step in our partnership is to hire an engineering firm. And we've, we've worked with a lot of these engineering firms at our refinery. In the past, to look at our two of our units, one in particular that we're focused on right now, and to tell us what equipment we would need to add to produce sustainable aviation fuel. And what's really exciting, I think, is we can convert this unit here at our refinery for tens of millions of dollars, which is still a lot of money. But if you look at some of these other plants that people are talking about building, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. So. We have a big head start because we have this refinery here, and we have a unit that's set up pretty well for conversion.
0: People talk a lot about different products that we can use, but are we growing anything right now that can be used for biofuels, aviation fuels?
7: Very little. There's a company that you may be familiar with called Pacific Biodiesel. They have a refinery on the Big Island, and their founders, Bob and Kelly King, are also involved in agriculture and have done some things with oil-yielding crops. We are partnering with them in a couple of ways. They're really the pioneers in this, and I think there's probably a lot we can learn from them. We'd love to jumpstart that industry and really bring it to scale. We've been talking with the University of Hawaii Department of Agriculture, and we think it can really complement local food production. The the crops that we'd like to grow are cover crops, so they help the soil kind of rejuvenate, or crops that are rotational, so you you might grow a, a food crop in one season and um, an oil yielding crop in another. So I think there's an opportunity to work hand in hand on on local food production as well.
0: So when you say oil producing crops, like what types of things are we talking about
7: specifically? So on the mainland, there's a lot of soybean that's being grown and the the meal uh, goes into animal feed or other food production. And then the oil is crushed and separated. and, And that oil goes to renewable diesel development. That's that's big on the mainland. Some of the refineries in California are not taking soybean oil and and converting it into diesel fuel. And so we have to figure out what crops are gonna work for Hawaii, what's gonna grow well here and and work in our environment.
0: What's the timetable?
7: Well, we expect that it'll last at least two years while we work through options. We think we'll have our first study done within the next six months. And so at that point, we'll know what we need to do to our refinery to convert this unit and then it becomes a question of feedstock you know can we spur this local industry to produce these oils that's our preference we really want to do that if we can't then we'll have to look at sources uh, to import oil into hawaii and you know we import oil today so it's not particularly scary we think we can figure that out and then the last piece is uh, having the right incentives in place california has incentives that range from a $1 dollar to a dollar fifty a gallon for um, renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel, we don't have that kind of regime here, so it's, it's hard for us to compete without that kind of incentive structure. And there's some things at the federal level that we'd like to work on too. And so we plan to talk to uh, partner with Hawaiian and talk to the stakeholders to try to get those incentives in place.
0: What about the use of algae, you know, seaweed for biofuels? I mean, is that something that, that could be in the equation?
7: You know, a lot of people have tried that, uh, done some things with algae. So far, it hasn't. Really worked commercially for energy. I think there, some people are using algae oil for uh, cosmetics and other kind of higher value products where you get a lot more a lot more value for the oil. I don't see algae being a big part of the mix here.
0: Okay, but we just have to find some other crop uh, that would grow well in
7: Hawaii that would meet our needs. Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: You do work with the military as well. I don't know. Is is the military talking about this?
7: We haven't had any discussions with them about renewable fuels. I I know that it is a, a priority for them, but I, I sense it's more of a longer term priority. So we haven't haven't really talked about renewables with them.
0: You are talking with them though about fuel storage because of our Red Hill underground fuel situation, but what can you tell us about that?
7: We know that the Secretary of Defense, of course, has ordered that the facility be shut down. He asked for the, the Navy to prepare a report on that. And I think that was due at the end of May. And I, I've seen some of the press coverage of a report, so I assume that that was responsive to his request. And he's also asked for the facility to be shut down by the end of next May, so May 2023. We're standing by to see how we can help with that. We did win a small contract for uh, fuel storage that, that sort of helps them keep the military supplied while they figure out what happens to Red Hill. That contract was for about 5% of the capacity of Red Hill, so it doesn't really replace Red Hill. It's it's really just to keep them running on a day-to-day basis. So we're helping them out in that regard, and I know that they're thinking about larger storage options and where that could come from to replace what Red Hill does for the military today, and we'll just have to see how that plays out and and what kind of role we can play. We have basically two facilities in Kapolei. We've got the refinery That we run, we call that Part East. It's the old Tesoro refinery. And um, and we have a lot of tanks here supporting the refinery. They're used every day to make fuel, so it runs at a pretty high capacity. And then we also lease some tanks at the old Chevron refinery. We bought some of those assets before COVID, and unfortunately, we had to shut down that plant. Um, because of the loss of fuel demand. But we still have some tanks there that we lease. And we use them, but they're not as highly utilized. And so there is an opportunity there to repurpose those tanks for military fuel storage.
0: Okay, so you're basically uh, at a point, though, where...
7: In the, in the short term, you know, we take our role in the economy here very seriously. The state's counting on us to be a reliable supplier of fuel. We're, we're not the only supplier, but we're the largest supplier. And then in parallel to that, we want to work on these innovative things that are gonna represent the future for energy in Hawaii. So I think that's the beauty of what we're talking with Hawaiian Airlines about is we can continue to run our refinery more or less the way we do today. And right on the side we can develop new capability to develop to produce sustainable aviation fuel. So, you know, we're gonna be looking for other opportunities like that.
0: That was Par Hawaii's Eric Wright talking to us about the latest with the military's Red Hill defueling plans and the recent Biofuels feasibility study that it is undertaking with Hawaiian Airlines. Full disclosure, Hawaiian Air is a HPR underwriter. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence delve into details of a rare planetary conjunction of heavenly bodies. Here's your Monday Stargazer. <laughs>
6: stargazer time our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and things we can try and spot in our dark skies we are thankful for astronomer christopher phillips to be back with us and the information he's always toting along we've got him on the line right now chris welcome back what is in store this week hello dave good to be back so this week stargazers the planetary menagerie of venus mars jupiter and
8: saturn continues to be visible in our eastern skies at dawn The moon this week is passing through its full moon phase and so stargazing for those faint objects in the heavens is going to be very challenging
6: indeed. One thing that is not going to be challenging is hearing Chris get excited because upcoming, one of his favorite (laughs) astronomical events, a planetary conjunction. Is that true?
8: It is indeed, yes. This week we are in for a celestial treat. A conjunction of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn will occur in our morning skies. June 16 will be when all five planets are visible, but if you wait till June 24, this planetary carnival will be joined by the crescent moon. This happens once every 20 years so you may want to try and catch it otherwise it's going to be a long wait for the next one.
6: And of course let's dial all the way back to the beginning of the wrap and explain for so many folks who are probably saying what is a conjunction though?
8: Well simply put a conjunction is when two or more celestial objects align in the sky. It just so happens that in this case all five planets are aligned in their natural order, that is to say the order they are in distance from the Sun. So we have Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter and
6: Saturn. That is very cool. That's going to be really special.
8: It is indeed, but you're going to have to get up pretty early to see it. In fact, both events will occur about an hour before sunrise, so Ooh. early rises only.
6: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds cool, though. And what
8: direction again? So this phenomena can be seen in the eastern and southern
6: skies. All right, it's huge. Well, We got our uh, viewing orders this week. And on that, do the uh, do eight of them ever line up? Unfortunately not. The entire solar system never aligns because all the planets have
8: different orbits and also orbital tilts, which means they never perfectly align. But I wouldn't feel too left out, since Neptune and Uranus are not visible to the naked eye, and so you wouldn't see
6: them anyway, even if it were to happen. So you can just pretend that's the case and enjoy it just as much. (laughs) You could indeed. (laughs) Christopher Phillips, we're having fun at Stargazer, and uh, another exciting report here. We appreciate it. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer
2: yourself online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. On the next Fresh Air, MSNBC anchor and NBC News correspondent Katie Turr. In her new memoir, she writes about her childhood, early professional career, and family relationships. Her father, she says, was a charismatic and talented reporter, but also had a volatile temper. Her dad came out as a trans woman in 2013. Join
1: us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point.
2: Support for HPR comes from Moana Hotel by Mantra, welcoming guests, offering rooms and suites with ocean, mountain, and city views, and a lobby reflecting a blend of Hawaii's tropical colors. Reservations at alamoanahotel.com.
0: If you listen to Morning Edition regularly, you probably heard of StoryCorps. It's the Brooklyn-based organization which is focused on recording, preserving, and sharing stories from Americans. They're here on Oahu this week gathering stories of people's experience with the military. Stories like the one Oahu native Kevin Karota told us about his uncle Robert Karota. Robert was a Farrington alum and a member of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team in World War II. He was killed in action near Bruyere, France, after leading his his men in a mission to take out snipers and machine gun nests in October 1944. For his bravery and sacrifice, he was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. Around the time of his death, Robert's class ring was lost. Then it was found last November, nearly 80 years later, by a Frenchman named Sebastian. And after months of failed attempts to reach the Kuroda family, it was finally returned to them last month. Kevin Kuroda sat down with the Conversations Russell SubiONO in our studios to share that story.
9: Do you know how he got into the Army?
10: After Pearl Harbor was bombed, Mm -hmm. he had wanted to become a employee at Pearl Harbor and basically was denied access because of ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And he became one of four brothers who enlisted in the Army. And of the four brothers, he was one of two that served in combat. Uncle Robert was awarded the Medal of Honor after the fact, and his older brother, Ronald Kuroda, mm-hmm. was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross and had received the Medal of Honor on behalf of Robert and the rest of the family. What was your family's feelings about him and his brothers going off to war? You know, I'm the generation past, yeah. but I'm sure there was a lot of pride. I'm sure there was a lot of... Anguish. Mm-hmm. I had remember distinctly hearing my father say that his parents were against Robert joining the army because he already had two brothers who were serving. Mm-hmm. But because of his situation, not being able to get employed is why he adamantly wanted to serve and did serve. When your dad talks about his brother, how does he describe him? He was as straight as an arrow. Yeah, He was uh, integrity. He was not a gambler, not a drinker. He was uh, just a straight arrow and that's all he was described.
9: Yeah, it seems like a, like a good quality for a soldier, right? you correct. And your story has to do with the Battle of Bruyere. That battle took place in October 1944. Soldiers from the 442nd fought to free the French town from German occupation and rescue the lost battalion of Texas. 800 soldiers were lost, and that battle is considered to be one of the 10 major military battles fought during World War II but your story was about
10: your uncle's class ring. What's that story? We recently got back from France. Mm -hmm. And the reason we were in France is Uncle Robert, he was killed 77 years ago, Mm -hmm. October 20th, 1944. Mm -hmm. And in November of 2021, a Frenchman by the name of Sebastian had found his Farrington High School class ring. And in finding that ring, Sebastian is just an incredible individual with an incredible family he had done research to try to locate and return the ring to Robert's family. Mm-hmm. He had reached out to a number of 442 organizations without success. So he had reached out to different businesses, even my uncle's auto shop mm-hmm. without success. And from that, he had contacted his cousin, who was in Iowa, Bridget. Mm-hmm. And Bridget who was bilingual, who had called Crota Auto Body. And it was my cousin who had contacted me to say, hey, there was someone from Iowa who was contacting a family to say that Uncle Robert's ring was found. They want to return it. We weren't quite sure it was a true story, right. but I followed up with the email to Bridget. We found out it was true and Sebastian had wanted to return the ring. This is when COVID was just rampant. So we established a relationship with Sebastian and we asked him to hold on to the ring. And when time allowed, we had wanted to go to France, meet Sebastian, personally thank him, and that's what we ended up doing. Oh, that's incredible. And so for the month of May, Mary and I flew up, took a train to Epinal, France, got picked up by Sebastian, and we spent three wonderful days with his family, and he had, that day, presented Uncle Robert's ring to us. He had made a, a stand or display to highlight the ring holder, and the following days, he was able to take us specifically to the exact spot wow. where the ring was found. Yeah. And it was emotional, you know, it was, it was heart-pounding, it was teary-eyed, but it, it was very meaningful. And after that, the following day, or maybe that afternoon, he took us to where Uncle Robert was actually killed. Okay. So you know, it, it, was, um, it was moving, and yeah. that was part of this overall message, how 77 years after the fact, mm-hmm we were able to get communication, and, and I, I have to give a lot of credit to Sebastian yeah. because he had researched without getting a response. He had looked up previous articles with my father and my uncle standing over Robert's grave, and mm-hmm. this was a Star Bulletin article many years ago, but he researched it, found Corotta Auto Body, and con- contacted the business. Uh, my cousin contacted me, and full circle. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. How did he find the ring? What was he doing that's, when he found that's it? That's good. So I asked him a lot of questions, yeah. and it seems that three years ago, mm-hmm. his son had requested uh, a metal detector for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so he buys a metal detector for his son, and he says, I want to do something with my son, so he bought one for himself. So he bought the metal detector. They started doing some metal mm-hmm. detecting. The sun kind of waned. They didn't continue, but he continued, and he has a couple of friends who, on their spare time, they go out and do it as a hobby. And he's found a number of items. Three rings, mm-hmm. but just one that he was able to return to our family. Two other rings that did not have any identification then. Mm-hmm. And the ring that he found for Uncle Robert was his Farrington High School 1940 class ring. Wow. On the inside, it just said R. Kuroda. Mm-hmm. So by knowing the high school, and what was inscribed inside is where he did his research. And he, at this point, A lot of the residents in France are generations down very appreciative of the Americans, Mm -hmm. 442, for liberating them because prior to liberation, they were occupied. They were occupied by Nazi Germany, and they saw the sacrifices of 442, and even his sons, they are appreciative of what the sacrifices and what the 442 did. That's pretty incredible
9: to think that that ring was on the ground there 77 years ago. Yes. And over the course of seven decades, through all kinds of weather and you know all kinds of of erosion and you know I don't know development and whatever else might happen in that time, it was in the right perfect place for Sebastian to find it That's, while he was out metal that, detecting.
10: That, that is part of this. Yeah. That is part of this incredible story. So you guys went out there
9: you you spent this time there you got to experience the the area can you tell me a little bit more about what your reaction was to the place where your uncle robert passed
10: it was um the feeling was mixed i felt pride in a sense that america and 442 Mm -hmm. did to liberate france and you know i was saddened uh, because it's the only sibling of my father who i never got to meet and it, it, it it was surreal you know you're you're walking on this a mountain path, and it's peaceful. Mm-hmm. It, you know, there, there, there are other families, uh, not many, but it's a trail. But as we walked, whether it was the area where he was killed or the area where they found the ring, which is close by, there's still remnants of the horrors of war. Yeah. They still have foxholes, many, many foxholes of where they were dug in. They had memories of shells or motors. Motors are dropped in uh, big holes, and this is 77 years later. Yeah. So it, it was I had a, a range of emotions.
9: Yeah. I guess at this point, the big question is where is the ring now?
10: The ring is right here.
9: Wow. Yeah. Would it be okay if I took a look at it? Would it Absolutely. Be okay for me to.
10: You know, it's a class ring from 1940, and we had talked about discussions about the importance of the ring. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I believe at that time, Uncle Robert may have been one of the first siblings to graduate high school. And to put out the resources to get a ring, I thought was very meaningful. Yeah, class rings are not cheap. And this was in 1940. You know, I don't see class rings now as being a big item that people spend resources on. But back then, I know it meant a lot. Did Sebastian say what condition it was in when he found it? Was it just
9: like covered in mud or rusty or anything like that? Or...
10: Yeah, it was I think about six to eight inches deep and he had dug it up, was uh, been underground for 70 plus years, so not in the best condition. And what he did is he just cleaned it up so he could read it and did the research so he could return it. This is a pretty
9: incredible ring. It's very simple, it's very simple. It it has what looks like the front entrance of Farrington Mm -hmm. imprinted on the front. There's, There's some lettering
10: around the rim Those are the words that say, enter to learn, go forth to serve, which was so appropriate for the school and uh, his journey. Do you see the year on each side. I see 19 on one side, 40 on the other. 1940. And underneath, yeah, very clear, R. Kuroda. After I got back, I made sure my dad got to see it. Mm -hmm. So my dad got to hold his brother's ring. Prior to Memorial Day, we went to Mm Punchbowl, where my uncle lay to rest, and we made sure that we paid respect to Robert with my dad in the ring. Robert's Medal of Honor is currently at Auto Autobody. Cousin Roland, in the shop, had made a very respectful display Mm -hmm. of Uncle Robert's uh, accomplishments and where the Medal of Honor is. I did check with Roland, you know, I didn't want to take for granted, so I said, hey, uh, Roland, after the family sees it and after the story is told, I thought it was appropriate that the ring stay at the shop yeah. where he had put the Medal of Honor. And you know, he, his response was, you know, it'd be an honor. He, yeah. you know, it'd be an honor to have Uncle Robert's ring after all these years join the, the Medal of Honor in the shop. Wow. So that's where it's gonna end up.
9: that's That's great. That's great to hear. What was your reason for Wanting to share this story, I mean, I, I think it's an incredible story. But what was it about the story that so excited you to
10: share it? Yeah, I'm a private person, mm-hmm. not the best public speaker. When I had told friends or I had, you know, posted some information on Facebook, just all the all the feedback said, you know, this has to be shared. Yeah. This story needs to be shared. And over time, I agreed. I would have been okay just retrieving a ring, sharing with family and and personal friends. But the the 442 sons and daughters, you know, they said this has to be shared. Other friends who've had relatives in the military, 442, they said, no, this has to be shared. And agreed, it's a story that should be shared. Yeah.
9: It's an incredible story of the kind of friendship and love that can come out of someone's sacrifice. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming in and and for telling us the story. Thank you very much, Russell.
0: That was Kevin Kuroda, retired Hawaii House of Representatives Sergeant at Arms. He was talking with HPR's Russell SubiONO. Kuroda was uh, sharing the amazing story of how his Uncle Robert's class ring was lost in France during World War II and was returned to his family last month. Military-related stories like these are being collected by StoryCorps on Oahu this week and will be archived in the Library of Congress. Clips from those stories will air during Morning Edition later this year. That's it for today. Tomorrow we get the latest on a legal challenge over the fuel-contaminated water at Red Hill. Have a story idea f- to share with us? Call our talk back line. If you missed something you want to listen back to that maybe you heard uh, today? Well, all of our shows are archived. You can find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>